and we'll get started. Gracious Father, we thank you for pouring your Holy Spirit upon us to bring us to believe in repentance, giving us the faith to follow you. Lord, we're here to, to know you more, to become excellent as, as you sanctify us in your truth. Pray you'll take us to the cross as we always remember the cost of bringing us to your truth because of your son, Jesus, who died that we might live and was resurrected and ascended to you to intercede for us, Lord. Thank you for your sovereign purposes with Paul and many others. His, his plans didn't necessarily work out the way he thought they would, but they became our benefit in your holy scriptures. I pray you'll enable us to continue to seek you and your truth, even as this class ends, that we may, uh, we may be empowered as witnesses among the lost. Lord, we praise you, we worship you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, some administrative things, let me get that out of the way. This is a, the eighth lesson, the last class, but um, two weeks from now, next week is Sunday, we're going to have a follow-up class, a recap, and I think it's going to be pretty interesting. I'm, I'm not going to be speaking very much. I've got a... Um, it's not a video, but it's um, kind of a devotional about prayer that I thought was, was really good and um, actually would have been good for the first class instead of the last class. I do want to comment on this last class since this is George's last day among us before he moves. You remember in the first class I said that I wasn't really a, um, a hugger? So the first thing I, I got finished, I walked outside and George puts me in a bear hug. It's like, thanks, George. <laughs> I love you too. So, even as the apostles need prayer, and Paul proclaims the gospel, he saw, you know, and he saw lives transformed, he saw churches planted, nations faced with a, a truth that was unknown to them. And uh, I, I think a good example is that note, Paul in Athens, <clears throat> which at that time was a center for uh, philosophy, man's search for truth and meaning in, in the ancient world. And in Acts 17, uh, verses 18 to 23, I think we have it up, should have it up here pretty soon. We read, He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing else except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. As I passed along and I observed the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he went on to, to preach a sermon. You know, in his travels and his preaching, he constantly put himself at risk. He encountered constant opposition, controversies, hardships, setbacks. And, you know, we're seldom at risk in this country, at least physically. Mostly, mostly the church in the United States is at risk, risks that are imposed by the culture, which is led by Satan. And and pastors who want to do something more than just preach the word of God. We, we've had a setback here 
with our pastor dying, and I'm, I'm saying in August because he hasn't been with us since August. And like Paul, all he wanted to do was preach the word of God. No special programs, no do something, no third option, just the word of God exposited and proclaimed, hardcore. The prayer we look at today is different than what Paul has prayed before. Before there's always thanks, there's evidence of divine grace, there's growth in the knowledge of God's will and power to grasp the limitless love of Christ, to be excellent and worthy of their calling from God, and that God fulfills his purposes in response to the prayers of his people. Paul was always praying for others. You know, they were aimed at the new believers back then, and basically everyone was a new believer, you know, at that time. Uh, this time he's praying that they'll pray for him. This prayer in Romans 15 starts in verse 14, but I want to key in on the verses 30 to 32. Romans 30, 14, 15, 30 to 32. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's wish I may come to, come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So we'll look at the video now. It's about 18 minutes long. And uh, then I'll come on back and make some comments. What this series on prayer has presupposed is that we Christians have the possibility of reforming our prayer lives through imitating the prayers of Scripture. And we could have focused on the prayers of David or Daniel for instance, but we have looked at the prayers of Paul. I think it would be a helpful exercise for some to write out these prayers of Paul and slip them into their Bibles. There are more prayers that we, we haven't had time to look at and reread them, reread them, reread them, memorize them, and then incorporate them into your regular praying for individuals, for missionaries, for pastors, for the church, for your family. Incorporate them into your regular prayer habits. That will not only increase your capacity to pray at, at greater length and with greater focus and with greater cohesiveness, but it will also focus your prayers on the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul himself, led by the Spirit of God, preserved for us in Holy Scripture, mandates as the way Christians ought to be praying today. The prayer of Paul that we find in Romans chapter 15, verses 30 and following, is a bit different from what we have seen so far. Most of the prayers that we have looked at in this series have been prayers that could have been prayed usefully, fruitfully, in any congregation in the first century or today. But this prayer is tied up with particularities arising from the context in which Paul finds himself. He says, for example, amongst other things, pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, and so on. This is referring to concrete events, and so we really must understand 
the context of chapter 15 a little better. Paul is writing to the Romans for a variety of reasons, but among them, he's explaining his plans. His desire is to go to Spain, um, right at the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, to preach the gospel where, he says, Christ is not yet known. He says something really stunning in this regard. His whole desire is to preach where Christ is not known, to do what we would call evangelism of unreached people groups. And there is no room for him anymore where he now is, he says, if that's going to be his ministry. He doesn't mean that everybody's become a Christian, but he is saying that the church is so well established where he is that it can propagate itself. It can, it can evangelize on its own without Paul as uh, the kind of apostle who breaks new ground, takes the leading role. But before he goes to Spain, um, he has certain jobs that he must tackle. He must pick up some money gathered by Christians in Greece, in Achaia and Macedonia. These are mostly Gentile congregations that have uh, attracted money, pulled money together, some of it very sacrificially given, to help believers, fellow Christians, who are of Jewish heritage back in the Jerusalem area. They have been going through particularly hard times. And from Paul's point of view, it's not only a duty, but a mark of love for the Gentile Christians to provide some material blessings to help the Jewish believers back home in Jerusalem, since after all, all the blessings of the gospel have come to the Gentile believers through the Jews. After all, that's what Paul himself learned from the heritage of Jesus. Jesus taught the Samaritan woman in John 4, salvation is of the Jews. The entire Old Testament revelation from Abraham on focuses on God's covenant people descended from Abraham. But along the way, there were promises to a Gentile audience that was much bigger. Abraham himself was told that that, um, through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But still, the old covenant people of God focused on one group of people, the Israelites, the Jews. Now, however, since the gospel has come to the Gentiles because of the Jews, it's only right and fair and good that where the Gentiles can help the Jews, they should be doing so. And that is a really important tone to stress today when there has been a history of anti-Semitism, even amongst some who take the name Christian, and, and overlooked entirely this, this chapter, which is flooded with a certain apostolic notion of indebtedness to Jews for the heritage that we have received. After all, the Messiah, whom we confess as Lord and adore as the second person of the Godhead, the one who went to the cross on our behalf, he was a Jewish first century man and he lived under the law. He fulfilled the terms of the law. He, he brought to fulfillment the things that had pre- been predicted in the law. And out of this spectacular self-disclosure of God has come, has come the fullness of salvation that is the rightful uh, heritage of all Christians, Jew and Gentile alike. 
the least we can do is provide the kind of support to these believers in Jerusalem who are going through tough times, Paul says. And the Christians in Achaia and um, Macedonia have gathered some of this money and Paul is going to see it through uh, all the way to Jerusalem. And then after that, he says, he hopes to get to Spain and on the way to Spain, from Jerusalem at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, he wants to stop in Rome. And when he stops there, he wants their support and fellowship in the gospel, but he also wants to communicate something of the gospel to them too. Paul is constantly outward looking, wondering what he can do to help, uh, to help believers in Thessalonica, to help believers in Philippi, to help believers now in Rome in order to get to Spain and help people there come to know the living God by proclaiming the gospel. Now that is the context in which Paul prays. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Incidentally, on the way by, I draw your attention once again to a Trinitarian reference. Paul's letters are full of them. Did you hear it in what I just read? I urge you to pray to God for me by our Lord Jesus Christ by the love of the Spirit. Did you see Father, Son, and Spirit bound up even in the motivation and direction and enabling of uh, Paul's prayers? By our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray to God, we end our prayers very often in Jesus' name. Amen. That's not a formula, nor is it a piece of magic. The prayer doesn't really work unless we add the magic words. That's not the point. The point is we have access to this God. We have boldness to approach this God. We have the promises of God that we can call on precisely because all of this has been secured by Jesus Christ. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, we come to you, Heavenly Father, because we have this right of access on account of what Christ has done on our behalf. He bore our sins. He took our guilt. Our slate is clean. We have access to your presence because of your dear Son. We pray in Jesus' name. And we are able to do this because of the work of the Spirit. Here, rather exceptionally, it's the love of the Holy Spirit that is particularly mentioned. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Now, that's remarkable. It recognizes that apostolic ministry can be a struggle, but it also presupposes that prayer for this ministry is itself rightfully considered a struggle, joining in the apostolic struggle. Paul might be on the front lines with all kinds of um, difficult things to face, he gives a long list of the physical abuse he suffered when he writes the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. You can read that on your own. But, but in addition, he knows that on top of the physical pressures, there is the disappointment sometimes from false brothers or the cares of the least of the saints. All of these are parts of apostolic struggle in pastoral apostolic ministry. And the least you can do to help the apostle is struggle in your prayer life. So what's presupposed is that praying is not always easy. What's presupposed is that it takes discipline, time set aside for God, prayer lists, thinking through apostolic needs as we think through today, 
pastoral needs. And joining with those who struggle in ministry by ourselves struggling in prayer. This is not the only passage where Paul views prayer as a kind of disciplined struggle. There will be moments of ecstatic joy where we're awash in the recognition of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, where our hearts are drawn in sympathy and love. But there will be times where prayer itself is a struggle. It's hard. It, it, it feels as if the, the heavens are as bronze, but we, we pray on. We, we wrestle in prayer in any case, asking God, sometimes to use Paul's language in an earlier chapter in Romans, with groanings that cannot be uttered, where we don't know quite what to ask for when we face really difficult circumstances and, and trust the Holy Spirit who is enabling us to pray, to, to pray with the right words since we don't know what they are. Any person who's more than a babe in Christ has gone through experiences in which in which we scarcely know what to ask for. Sometimes we know exactly what to ask for. Paul's own examples in prayer teach us what to ask for, but sometimes we don't know. We remember how in the Old Testament, one of the Old Testament leaders said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So also Christians sometimes don't know quite what to ask for, but our eyes are on Christ and and we struggle seeking for the right words and the Spirit gives them to us. Prayer is not always an easy thing, and I, I don't want to give the impression in this series that provided you simply follow the formulas of the apostle in a select group of prayers, therefore your, your, your prayer life will be automatically transformed and, and become magically effective. No, there is an element of praying that is difficult, involves discipline and struggle. And Paul recognizes that in this case too. So he says, I urge you to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. And then what does he ask for? Something great and glorious like um, that you will become forever more holy? No, no, that's not quite the focus here. Here it's an historic bit, a little historical context that needs to be resolved. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. That's the first petition. Number two, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. In other words, Paul recognizes that this journey that he's taking to Jerusalem is fraught with danger. And when you read the account in Acts, you discover how close Paul came to being mobbed, to being killed. And when he's finally arrested, a plot is uncovered to kill him. But the answer to these prayers, offered no doubt by the Romans, is precisely that Paul, in due course, was spared these things and eventually did get to Rome, albeit as a prisoner of the Roman government. And the second element, that the gift that was put together by the Christians in Achaia and Macedonia might be favorably be received in Jerusalem. At this point, many Jerusalem Christians, Christians of Jewish heritage, were finding it difficult to figure out exactly how the new covenant on which all Christians agreed related to the old covenant. What exactly was the place of the law now that Christ had come? And there, uh, some believers uh, had different views. You can find some of those matters disputed, for example, in, in Acts chapter 15. And Paul knows that there is enough suspicion of Gentile believers that even when these Gentile believers send money, 
without asking for anything in return to support poor Christians in Jerusalem and Judea, the gift could be viewed with suspicion, trying to buy us off, trying to, trying to somehow um, uh, persuade believers to be a little more sympathetic to Gentiles. Um, is, is that what they're trying to do? No, 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 no. Pray that by the power of God, the hearts of men and women will be so transformed that they'll receive this gift well. For the truth of the matter is, it takes as much grace to receive. Well, I guess that's going to be the end uh, there. I don't know what happened. You know, Paul realizes that if he's going to be a, an effective minister of the gospel, he must be utterly dependent on God's help, which comes through faithful and earnest prayers of many. We see in Colossians 4, verses 2 to 3, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to be declared the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And then in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 to 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. You know, this prayer is a prayer of ministry, in particular Paul's ministry. There's, there's four lessons I think we can learn from it, and uh, I'll start off here, lesson one. You know, Paul wants this, this prayer to be offered with earnestness and urgency and persistence. You know, his strongest appeal to them lies in what he's prayed for in other passages that we've read, that we've already studied. When he says, by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers for God on my behalf, you know, if you know anything about the love of the Spirit, if the Spirit's working in you, how can you not love? How can you not pray? Your prayers reflect your grasp of who Christ is and how well you love. So Paul's saying, join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. You know, prayer, prayer's the gymnasium of the soul. And Paul recognizes that real praying includes elements of struggle as, as uh, D.A. Carson just mentioned, you know, discipline, uh, work, spiritual agonizing against dark powers of evil. So pray with me in the spirit. You know, in, in many parts of the world, uh, I think spiritual warfare is taken a lot more seriously than many of us take it in the West. No doubt it's because in the West we have centuries of Christian influence, but also, you know, raw secularism, um, a pervasive worldview, that fails to perceive the extent of the demonic realm due to a culture that assigns sociological, uh, psychological, economic reasons for everything. You know, in the West, we fail to reckon with our own capacity for evil because at heart, we're all good people. You know, this week in Ukraine, we've seen images of innocents slaughtered in their homes and streets. Well, we think for no reason, but I'm sure that they, the other side probably has reasons, dark reasons. And, and history shows this has pretty much been the norm through human existence. You know, it really shouldn't surprise us. This goes back to the sixth chapter of Genesis in verses five to six. 
Am I getting any other verses up here? Okay. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Even, even today, it, it's come about that we see a, a retro movement in the West to the demonic. We see witches, covens. I think in Oklahoma, there's a, a statue to Satan. There's huge interest in the occult. Occult. <laughs> there's sex slavery. There's drugs like fentanyl enslaving people to their death. There's abortion. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of the demonic. And there's no fear of consequences, especially the eternal consequences. You know, and Paul understands that this business of praying, of struggling in prayer, it entails a fact that we are engaged in the supernatural conflict. We're all familiar with this verse from Ephesians 6.12, and we need to remember it and measure where we are in this battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And note how this passage is finished by Paul in verses 18 and 19. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You know, this is very similar to what we we're looking at in Romans 15. Different verse, but same sentiment. Even, even if all this dark power is against us, nonetheless, Jesus is for us. The Lord will sustain. And amen to that. Paul solicits prayer for himself. This is comment number two, lesson number two. He solicits prayer for himself in connection with his own ministry. This is the first time in the past seven lessons that we find Paul soliciting prayer for himself in his ministry. He would have uttered an amen to these lines by Joseph Hart from 1762. If pain afflict or wrong oppress, if cares distract or fears dismay, if guilt reject or sin distress, the remedy before you, pray. In a sense, all of Paul's prayers are connected to his ministry. So what he's asking for here are two things. He asked for prayer that he might be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. And there were many conservative, unbelieving Jews at that time in Jerusalem who not only viewed Paul as a turncoat, but also to be extremely dangerous, a man who wanted to destroy the very foundation of God's biblical revelation in the Mosaic Covenant. His emphasis on Jesus and his death and resurrection it ultimately diminished the temple as the meeting place between God and sinners. They pretty much had a, a wanted, dead or alive, uh, wanted, dead or alive posters out there or be on the lookout for all around town. And, and they did attempt to kill him. From the very beginning of his conversion after his return from Jerusalem, from Damascus, we read in, in Acts 9, verses 28 and 29, so he went out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Everywhere Paul went, whether in Israel or among the Gentiles, he was at risk. And let me emphasize a couple of things. Typically, 
It's the people in power who do the persecuting. Here we see the threat as the unbelievers. The important distinction is that today we're inclined to buy into a modern view that belief is simply a matter of opinion. No matters of, at, of ultimate truth are at stake. The New Testament writers don't see it that way. They hold that God has objectively revealed himself not only in the distant past, but in his son, Jesus, Jesus Christ, by raising him from the dead. And not to trust in him totally is not merely a question of religious preference or unbelief in a modern sense, but it's, it's willful disobedience. It's moral rebellion. It's the sinful elevation of the personal opinion and, and reference and priorities above the centrality of God. In short, a worship of self. And so Paul asked for prayer that his service in Jerusalem might be acceptable to the Lord's people there. We also should pray that Christian leaders might be rescued from the opposition of outsiders, outsiders who try to destroy their ministry and that their service is acceptable to those to whom they minister. We need to pray that God will send us under shepherds who are wise, spiritual, godly, disciplined, informed, prayerful, transparent, who just want to preach faithful to Scripture. But also that their ministry will be acceptable to the saints sitting in the pews that they're shepherding. We don't have pews here. We have chairs, but I like pews better. Um, Paul envisions further ministry opportunities. You know, Paul's, he's never met the Romans that he's writing to here. He wants to meet them uh, when he comes to Rome on his way to Spain. And that's always been his ambition, uh, to preach the gospel on virgin turf. I'm, re I'm reminded once again of uh, his sermon in the Areopagus in Athens, proclaiming to them the unknown God who he is, what he's done, how he's revealed himself in his son by raising him from the dead. If there was time travel, that's one sermon I'd love to hear in its entirety. You know, this is uh, the first real mention of Spain in Scripture, uh, as we know it. Rome certainly knew of it. Uh, Hannibal came from Spain, crossed the Alps, starting the first, second, and the first and second Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. You know, Spain was also referred to as Tarshish. Uh, it was the destiny of Jonah when he disobeyed God. Spain and Britain were considered at that time to be the ends of the earth. And Paul wants to go to the ends of the earth to extend his ministry to new fields and to preach the gospel. So he asked them to pray for him. This is a, a large visionary view of prayer. It doesn't simply ask God for enough grace to get through the coming days. It keeps asking, where are we going? How are we reaching out? How will the small events dovetail into the next stage of expansion of the gospel, of the gospel message? Paul has dreams, new needs, new opportunities, which he ties to the prayer, the prayers of himself and the prayer life of others. Nevertheless, it's a prayer that will not receive a positive response, as the Bible makes clear. You know, God has other purposes. But still, we do dream dreams. We pray for revival. Do we envisage the potential next of ministry, how to get from here to there? Are any of our prayers connected to a larger vision? Paul's prayer is always a concern for the gospel itself and for its extension in a, in a needy world. Without prayer, the gospel can never be preached effectively, 
can never be proclaimed faithfully, experienced in the heart, or practiced in life. By leaving prayer to the side, underfed by prayer, we leave God out. We leave God out, and his work cannot progress, not without him. We pray for revival in the United States because it's God who creates revival, not us. Paul's passionately committed to the gospel. How did, how did this come about? The same man who once thought to destroy the new church of Christ believers, you know, in Galatians 1, 11 to 18, I have, I have the sense that, that he was personally taught by the risen Christ. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with him 15 days. And this is why he cares about the gospel so passionately. This time with Christ in Arabia, after being blinded by Christ and then regaining new sight by Jesus, is what drives his prayer, all of his prayers. Is it what drives ours? After all, we're, we were once blind too. I think, number four, it's important to realize that some of Paul's prayers were not answered in the way he prayed for. But we know how the story works out because we have the book of Acts. You know, of these three requests that he makes, the second is granted and the first is not. He did get to Rome, but not like he thought he would. He was not delivered from unbelievers. He was arrested. He spent three years as a prisoner before being sent to Rome. His, his service for Jerusalem was acceptable, but he went to Rome as a prisoner. His dream of, of taking the gospel to Spain did not come about. However, in Rome, he did witness the gospel. He wrote many of his epistles and letters, the ones we have today. You know, and God had said that he would stand before kings, and he did exactly that. Like Paul, we too recognize that not all our prayers are answered as we would like. We've had that experience here as well. I mentioned a couple of lessons ago that the same was true of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, take this cup from me, and then he added, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Suppose that every time we asked God for anything and ended our prayer with an appropriate formula in Jesus' name, we immediately received what we asked for. How would we view prayer? How would we view God? You know, we'd have prosperity here on earth. And would God become nothing more than a, a powerful genie for us to be called up by prayer? Would, would that be the magical mystery incantation what a homogenized, domesticated religion that would be. It would be worship. It wouldn't be worship. It would be the wide gate. Everyone would be there. But I'm betting that 
there would still be coveting, there'd still be murder, there'd still be theft, there'd still be lies, there'd still be adultery. What's changed? God may give us what we ask for. He may decline to make, he may decline or he may make us wait or give us what we ask for but in a different way, different means. Grace is what Paul needed from the thorn in his flesh rather than its removal and grace is what we too have received. You know, there's another um, poem. It's anonymous. I'll just... I had one verse here that I wanted to read. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. After these eight lessons, I've come to think that what I've really learned, and I mentioned that at the first, uh, in the first class, I was going to be as much of a student as you were. But I think what I've really learned is that a sovereign, holy, loving, wise Father whom we address in Jesus' name is more interested in me and in us than in our prayers. I'm not, I'm not putting prayer down. I realize that he's interested in me as his child. The same way he was interested in Paul's ministry to new believers. You know, prayer is a means of getting to know God, getting to know him better, learning his mind, his will. God's... Uh, answer to Paul was the best possible answer. And ultimately for us today, 2,000 years later, we derive the benefit of God denying Paul's request as we read and learn from Paul's writings. God's purposes had implication years beyond Paul's death in Rome. And what he wrote by the Holy Spirit still brings people to repentance and belief. Even a Martin Luther, a Spurgeon, a Martin Lloyd-Jones, a John Leader, a Pete Giordano, we've all benefited precisely because it was God's purpose being consummated to his people's benefit and to his glory. Romans 5, 1 to 6, you know, if you, if you got the, the card that I handed out or had handed out in the first and second class, and I th think there's still some up at the uh, greeter stand there, I want to end with this as, as our ending prayer. It's, and, and it's still at the bottom of those uh, cards that I mentioned. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.